Amen. It's good to see you today. If you haven't been with us, we've begun a couple weeks ago a study through the book of 2 Samuel. Now, if you get those books, 1 and 2 Samuels, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, mixed up, here's the way to break them down. 1 and 2 Samuel. 1 Samuel is when Saul was king. 2 Samuel is when David was king. So David's in 1 Samuel too, but not as king. Then you get to, you know, after 2 Samuel, get to 1 and 2 Kings. 1 Kings is Solomon, and 2 Kings is all the rest of the kings. And then 1 and 2 Chronicles is a rerun going through all the kings only of Judah. It ignores the northern kingdom. So if that helps you, we are now in the early stages of David's reign, even though we know a lot about David, we've seen a lot about him, you know, moving forward. But in chapter three, the chapter opens by letting us know that, and remember David had become king of only the tribe of Judah, the biggest tribe geographically, but an awful lot of that southern area is desert. It also borders the strongest cities of the Philistines. So wasn't necessarily the most lush place, but that was where David was from. And so he was the one that they said, we want you to be king, and he had become the king of Judah. Now, up in the north, the other 11 tribes, um, Abner, who was the general of Saul, uh, he must not have been very good because he survived when Saul and his boys got killed. But Abner wanted to create an alternate kingdom to David's. Maybe he was bitter against David for whatever reason. He had worked for Saul, so you could understand that. But he had picked a guy named Ishbosheth, who was probably an illegitimate son of Saul. So he had the genetics. He, the name Ishbosheth means a son of, of disgrace. So tough name to tag somebody with. But you know, he's like, okay, fine, I'll elevate you. So Abner is developing a kingdom with 11 tribes of Israel. Well, David has his one tribe, but he was the one that God had actually anointed to be king. The northern tribes maybe weren't quite ready for David to become their king because he knew David had been working, they knew David had been working for the Philistines, and so there were a lot of, there was some baggage. So we come to chapter 3, and let's just go through this. There was a long war between the house of Saul, the north, and the house of David, Judah. But David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. Abner is kind of a weak general. Ishbosheth was certainly a weak king. And so naturally, with David at the head, the tribe of Judah was doing well. Things weren't going as well for the north. But now it mentions that sons were born to David in Hebron, where he was ruling. This is before he moved the capital down to Jerusalem. That'll happen in a few chapters. But he started having kids. And it lists you know, seven sons that he had by seven different women. He was... When you're king, that's something that you did. Now, a lot of times people look at this and they judge that David did this. I've heard plenty of pastors who said, God told them 
when you get a king, make sure that he doesn't multiply wives to himself. God didn't say that. What God said is, I just want you to know, when you get a king, he's going to have a bunch of wives. He didn't make a judgment on that, good or bad. And as we go through the Bible, in the Old Testament especially, I'm constantly reminding you of the principle of historic contextualization. You can never be a student of history without coming to terms with the fact that you look at history and you see things that they do and you go, that sounds weird. But the answer is, that's the way they did it in those days. Now today, people aren't students of history. We try to cancel history and pretend like everything that exists is exactly the way we are right now. We even forget the way we were 10 years ago. That no, but now is now and everything else is to be judged. So I don't want to judge David for getting a bunch of wives. He was just doing what the kings did in those days and God never assaults him for it as well. Of course, later his son, who would be the next king, really doubled down and 700 wives and 300 concubines. Now a lot of these wives were were there because their dads were important people. And so these were marriages of convenience. They also, you know, he also had concubines. That was, again, it's just the way they did it. The Bible never tells them not to. Um, experience tells us it's a really bad idea. I've had one wife for my whole life, and I'm so thankful for Anne, but it doesn't make me want to have two. It doesn't make me think... <laughs> Wow, I should double down on this. But so David has all these sons. He had daughters too, but they didn't matter. Sorry, that's just the way they did it back then. So it lists them and who they were. And now, uh, and this is while he was in Hebron. Now in verse six, while there was a war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was strengthening his hold on the house of Saul. So Abner who was a general, not the greatest general, because again, they lost. But he had seen his opportunity to become important by elevating Ishbosheth to the position of king in the north. But he was the guy pulling the strings. And he was finding more and more opportunity to make himself more and more powerful, which is, of course, what every politician is doing. I don't, you know, if you're running for school board, sorry, you know, somehow you want to control something. That's kind of why people do this. So he was doing it. He was getting stronger, more influential. But in verse 7, we see that Saul had had a concubine. He had a bunch of concubines, but this particular one, um, Ishbosheth accused Abner of going into her. Like, and he probably did it. He doesn't deny it. But if you're trying to get more powerful, one way that you would typically do it would be to take somebody else's concubines and take them as yours. And it wasn't a, um, a physical satisfaction thing. It was a power move. And so this is something that he was accused of doing. He probably did it later when Absalom ran David out of the throne. Absalom took his dad's concubines and was um, having relations with them out in public just to show him up. This is probably that kind of move. But Abner freaks when Ishbosheth goes, hey, Abner, I don't know, man. That was my dad's concubine. Maybe this isn't the best thing for you to do. And Abner in verse 8, 
became very angry at Ishbosheth. He said, Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? Today I show loyalty to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not delivered you into the hand of David, and you charge me today with a fault concerning this woman. He's like, I am the guy who put you where you are. How dare you question me? So he put him as king, but he's basically saying, I'm not going to answer to you. You better remember who gave you your job. You better remember I'm your boss. You're not my boss. Don't you dare question me. But he went beyond that. (laughs) Because then he says, May God do so to Abner and more also, if I do not do for David as the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul, set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba, and he could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. He's like, okay, that's strike one, and that's all the strikes you get. I elevated you. You are questioning me. I'm taking you out. In fact, I'm going to go right now and cut a deal with David, and I'm going to be the hero that brings all 12 of the tribes of Israel together because you dare question me. A typical power move. So Abner did it. He he sent messengers on his behalf to David and said, hey, you know, we're all one people. Why don't you make a deal with me and my hand will be with you and I will bring the other 11 tribes of Israel to look to you as the king. And David said, sounds good. I'll make it a deal. I'll make a covenant with you in verse 13. But one thing I require of you, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael or Michelle, it's really a combination of the two, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Kind of weird. Now, you can look at David's seven wives that are listed here and go, that's the way they did it. But this isn't something that they did. When like, okay, I have seven wives, they're all breeders, but I want my ex-wife back. I know she's married to somebody else, I don't care. Now, David is beginning to show his colors. He's not just doing what people do. The law actually forbid you from going back after your, if you've divorced your wife and she's with somebody else and then they get a divorce, you're forbidden to ever go marry her again. You stay away from your exes. It just doesn't work out well. That was the, that was the Old Testament law. Now, David would probably say to that, hey, we never technically got a divorce. She betrayed me to her dad. He ran me out of the country. And so I don't know how in the world he probably got an annulment and she marries some other guy. But I want her back. Does he want her back because he loves her? No. And when you continue to read the story, you find out. No, he, he had, it wasn't like, well, I really miss my old girlfriend. It was that this is a power move. The daughter of Saul, she's mine. I paid for her with Philistine foreskins, and I want her back. So Abner, the whole future of the nation of Israel is at stake, but right now what I care about, Michelle, the ex-wife, bring her here. And he's like, done. That's fine. And so he makes Ishbosheth do the dirty work. Messengers sent David sent messengers to Ishbosheth 
and said, give me my wife, Michelle, whom I betrothed to myself for 104 skins of the Philistines. Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, from Paltiel, the son of Laish. He's like, okay, if this is what we have to do, sorry, it's a small price to pay. Michelle, you're on your way to see your ex-husband, and he's going to own you now. And her poor husband went along in verse 16, weeping behind her. This guy really loved her. Doesn't matter. This is more important than your relationship. And finally, Abner, General Abner, says to him, just get out of here. He's like, oh, okay. So kind of certainly not the greatest hero. He wasn't like, I'll fight to the death for my wife. No, it's like, never mind. I'm going to miss her. But, you know, so now Abner had communicated with the elders of Israel in verse 17, said, look, guys, you know, remember David when he killed the giant, when he was your hero, when you said, oh, Saul's killed his thousands, David his ten thousands? Remember how you guys always knew that someday, as Samuel had anointed David, that he would be your king? Well, guess what? We are going to unite. No more war between Judah and Israel. We're going to all unite around King David. And he gave this great speech to prepare them for the deal that he was cutting, which, of course, would include himself as being in an important position. In his mind, he probably thought it would make him at least equal to Joab because he's the guy that pulled 11 tribes. How many did you help, Joab? You you worked with one tribe. But remember, Abner also knew Joab had issues with him because at one time, Abner had killed Joab's little brother. And he tried not to. When, when Joab's brother's chasing Abner, he's like, come on, man, I don't want to answer to your brother. And he's telling him, go back, turn back, don't do this. And finally, he ends up hitting him with the back end of his spear, and it goes right through the little twerp, and, and he's dead. And now, but it's still like, oh, boy, I got to do this carefully. So he said, you know, God has told David that he's going to be king. And, and, you know, so Abner spoke to, in the hearing of the tribe of Benjamin in particular, which was the southernmost tribe other than Judah, and it was the tribe of Saul, because he thought, if I get these guys on my side, then we're in business. But David heard about it too. And so finally in verse 20, Abner and 20 men with him came to meet with David at Hebron, their capital at the time. And David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I'm going to get up and go, and I'm going to get all Israel to you, my lord, the king. I'll be as loyal to you as I was to Ish... No, never mind. (laughs) But they're going to make a covenant with you, and you're going to reign over everything that your heart desires. And David's like, cool, I'm in it. But the problem is, Joab had been out fighting a battle, raiding some village, and he wasn't there. And Joab felt like, why would you make a deal like this without even including me? You know I have issues with Abner. You know I'm the guy that's fighting for you while you're back here having government dinners with people. Now, what's up? And then he he pulls David aside and he says in verse 24, what have you done? Abner came to you. Why is it that you sent him away and he's already gone? Surely you realize that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you. He said, I don't know what Abner promised you, but this guy is a con man. 
He is trying to defeat you. We're beating him up out on the battle. We are risking our lives for you. And this coward comes sneaking around and he's acting like he's going to cut a deal. Believe me, he's just spying on us. You cannot trust this guy. But David was like, I don't know. He seemed, seemed like a good guy. So as soon as Joab left, he kind of backstabbed David. And he sent messengers to Abner in verse 26 and said, Oh, hey, buddy, um, there's a couple more things we need to hammer out about this deal. So come back and, and let's talk about it, the two of us, which would have been an obvious thing. It's like, okay, we're the two generals. If our countries are getting together, we probably need to compare notes. So Abner, not the sharpest knife in the drawer, is like, oh, okay. And he comes back and then Joab says, hey, come here. I have a secret. And it says in verse 27, he took him aside in the gate to speak with him privately and there stabbed him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. So he kills him. And, you know, he didn't get David's permission, obviously. Now you find out both of these generals aren't as loyal as you thought they were. Loyalty is a funny thing. You know, people will build their own power base you know, ostensibly as loyal servants of whoever's in charge. But you never know if someone's truly loyal until you find out what they do when they don't agree with what you're doing. Anyone can be loyal to somebody who's doing what you want them to do. I've seen this over and over again where there are people who would profess how loyal they are, but then, I mean, there are times as a pastor when I felt like, I think God wants us to do this. I remember when we did away with our regular Wednesday night studies so that more people could get in home fellowships. And there were people who just angrily left the church over that. And I talked to them and they said, look, we've been loyal to you all this time, but this is going too far. And I said, you've been loyal to me as long as I did everything you wanted me to do. The one time I do something that you didn't want me to do, now you really proved you were never loyal to begin with because loyalty only comes when it's tested. Now, the loyal thing to do is to, if you disagree with someone, to let them know personally. But when you've given them your take, to back away and not to be out there trying to undercut them, not to change sides, just like, because I'm loyal, I'm gonna tell you the truth. But because I'm loyal, I'm not going to go against you. I'm not going to go behind your back either. So Joab and Abner both had a huge problem with that, which is kind of sad when they are the two military leaders for now what would become the whole nation of Israel. So after he kills them, then David heard about it in verse 28. And he said, I didn't do this. <laughs> My kingdom and I are guiltless before the Lord forever of the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. He disowned this action and says, I wasn't into that at all. Let it rest on the head of Joab and on all his father's house. And let never, it's a pretty tough curse, let there never fail to be in the house of Joab one who has a discharge or is a leper or leans on a staff or falls by the sword or who lacks bread. So it's like, 
I want their family to have troubles forever because of doing this. Was he fired? Oh, no. no. Joab still worked for David for the rest of his life. Did his dirty work at times. He's the one that he sent out to make sure that, you know, Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, was killed. Now Joab's still doing his job, but David distanced himself from it. So you start to think, wait a minute. David, did you really like what he did? But now you're letting him take the hit? I mean, sometimes you have people who, um, you know, will be, they'll, I remember Pastor Romaine, sometimes he would get blamed for stuff and Chuck would act like he didn't know anything about it. But it's like, he told them to do it. But he goes, and I remember Chuck telling me one time, he goes, I go, they're mad at me for doing what you told me to do. And he goes, that's part of your job. So you think, I hope that's not disrespectful. It's just true. But, you know, people probably thought, wait a minute, David, you're saying, this isn't on me, but come on, aren't you kind of happy that it happened in a way? Doesn't this make your life simpler? But that's definitely not the case. Anyway, Abishai, um, who, who was uh, David's bodyguard and Joab, who was his general, uh, got revenge. But David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, tear your clothes, gird yourselves with sackcloth, and mourn for Abner. And King David followed the coffin. He didn't want anyone to misunderstand. He was mourning the loss of Abner. Crazy. But they buried Abner in Hebron, interestingly, which was David's capital. They didn't bury him back where he was from. And the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner. And everybody was crying. And the king sang a lament over Abner. He wrote a song for Abner's funeral. It's not the greatest song, honestly. I hope it had a good tune, but... You know, it says, should Abner die as a fool dies? Kind of catchy. Your hands were not bound, nor your feet put into fetters. As a man falls before wicked men, so you fell. At least he wrote a song. It's more than you did. Then all the people wept over him again. And when all the people came to persuade David to eat food, they're like, you're still fasting? Come on, man, you got to eat. You're the king now of 12 tribes of Israel. You better get something to eat. And David uh, took an oath in verse 35 and said, God do so to me and more also if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. He goes, I am not eating if it kills me. Now look at verse 36 carefully. Now all the people took note of it and it pleased them since whatever the king did pleased all the people. For all the people in all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's intent to kill Abner, the son of Ner. Then the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I'm weak today, though anointed king. And these men, the sons of Zeruah, are too harsh for me. The Lord shall repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. The people looked at David's response. And to me, in the way that David handles all of this, I'm not crazy about the way he, you know, wanted more and more wives and like stealing the ex-wife from her husband. But when it comes to this, like you see why God says 
He is a man after my heart. Because here's a guy who looks at somebody who, him dying is actually good for you. But you're mourning. You valued him as a person. You didn't want, I mean, Abner was a guy that when, when uh, David was in the wilderness, Abner was leading the hunt to try to kill David. And David called him out when he had had a chance to kill Saul and he said, I'm not going to kill the Lord's anointed. He's yelling at Abner going, oh, some bodyguard you are. What's your problem? What are, you know, you can't even protect the king. So he has everything to gain at this point. The deal's already done. There's no way that, you know, on his own that somehow the Hithophel can pull things off. It's like, Abner's dead, you're dead, David's the king over Israel. And yet the people looked at David and they go, this guy really cares. He really means this. Now, how can you have this kind of sentiment about somebody who was really not that great of a person? Somebody who you have everything to gain by him being out of the picture. And you're going to make your own general be kind of irritated because you're forcing him to mourn and everything. And you're like publicly telling people that he's going to pay a price. At the same time, it's amazing that Joab didn't get fired. And Abishai, by the, at this point, David could have found somebody else to run things. But David kept him working the whole time until he died. Finally, when David was about to die, he pulls Solomon aside and he goes, after I'm dead, take out Joab. <laughs> so he puts a hit on him in the end. But at least at this point, David, he shows God's heart in a way. And you might go, that's blasphemous to compare this to the heart of God. But think about it. What does God have to work with? There are so many times when I see somebody working for God and they are a phony and they are looking out for themselves and they are just ambitious and manipulative. And I think, somebody ought to kill that guy. I'm not advocating assassinations, but, um, you know, I, I do miss guys like Joab. But, no, but it, you look at it and go, I expect God to lower the boom. But what if God lowered the boom on everyone who was less than pure? The only people God has to work with are flawed people. David understood, these are the guys that I have to work with. And he reflects God's heart by being honest about how flawed they were, while at the same time going, but you know what? This is what I have. If you somehow think that God is only going to work through people who are really pure and good, you're delusional. Because there's no one that does good. There isn't anyone who is pure. So what God does is work through flawed people. And if we are going to reflect him, we need to be willing to do the same. See, the natural reaction for David would have been to kill Joab right now. But what happens when you see a bully and so you bully the bully? You just became that guy. When you do what someone else is doing in order to deal with that person, they transferred you into being them. And David understands this somehow on a certain level. 
But in the end with this whole chapter, for me, the greatest thing that I pull out of this is the whole issue of wanting more, not learning to be content. You know, with every one of these guys, David, he, he has, he's the king of Judah. They're winning wars. Everybody loves him, but he wants more. He has seven wives. Each of them has at least one son. He's got a pretty full quiver, I would say. But the ex-wife, I think I'll take her too. It turns out to be a really dumb move on his part. It, you know, you, if you think that you can go back and find your first love and it's going to be great, eh, not usually. Um, once they're out there wandering around and, and being with other people, and the only reason they ever liked you in the first place is because you were the first person they met. So, but it's this greed that says, I want more. And that's why he had a guy like Joab who worked so well, because Joab also always wanted more. And sometimes it can be pretty successful to have somebody working for you who's greedy. But in the end, are you expecting that person to ever be satisfied? No. You know, Ahithophel, he wanted more. He wanted to be bigger and more important than he was. It ultimately ends up costing him his life, but at this point, it cost him the throne. You have Abner. He's a pretty good place. He's the most powerful person in 11 tribes of Israel, but he wanted more. Just because of a personal insult, he wanted that. And in each of these cases, nobody was ever at a point where they go, I'm good. I'm satisfied. I have peace. And I would suggest to you that the kind of violence and horror that ends up developing in this nation is the same thing that happens in our lives when we never get to the point where we are satisfied where we are. Where what Paul calls to be content. To be able to say, and you know, everybody quotes, you know, especially in sports, Philippians 4.13. I know Mookie Betts, when he signs a ball, he writes Mookie Betts, Philippians 4.13. Uh, Julio Urias, a pitcher for the Dodgers, has it tattooed on his arm. Um, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Yeah, let's go do it. Let's go win. But it's a verse that very few people really look at it in the context. And in Philippians 4, where Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, he, you know, before that, he says, He's talking to the church in Philippi and in Philippians 4, and he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that at last your care for me has flourished. So the church had given him a little bit, and I'm glad you care. But not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's a little different, huh? It's like saying, you know what? I can be hungry. I can have nothing. I can be on the verge of death. I'm good. I can be blessed and have a lot and a bunch of fans and everything's going well. I'm good. I can handle any of that. 
It's the only way to truly have power in life is to learn to be content wherever you are. Now, if you can't come to terms, Paul earlier in Philippians talked about the fact that, look, I forget what lies behind. Whatever's past doesn't matter. I'm focused on what is now, what God is giving me to do right now. I'm pressing toward the mark of what matters to me. And he learned to be content. It's something that David didn't know. It's something that Ishbosheth didn't know. It's something that Abner didn't know. It's something that Joab didn't know. None of them would ever get to a point where they would go, this is good. Because so many of us are languishing in the past, hanging on to hurts from the past, or we're anxious and stressed about the future. What's going to happen? And somehow we want to do whatever it takes to win. I have this picture that I posted one time. I'm going to order some of the mugs, but it was a mug that said, I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. (laughs) (laughs) And it's so true. But what it comes down to in life, can you live now and say, I'm good? Because you will never get enough for you to be satisfied. And you will never get closure from the past enough for you to be satisfied. All there is is now. Everything in the past doesn't exist anymore. Everything in the future, I have no idea what's going to happen. What I have is now, and if I'm not content now, I'm sabotaging, not only now, I'm sabotaging my future. It's why, ultimately, with all of these guys, it's what caused the nation to deteriorate. They never got enough. I just read a book this week about uh, called Happiness and the Industry or something like that. And they were showing how much people are, you know, that business is oriented toward making people happy because it's, a, it's an empty promise. So you'll do something, you'll pay money, and you think you're going to be happy, and you are for a second, and then you're not anymore, and now you need to buy something else, and now you need more, and now you need to get more. And we all live in that world where somehow we think if, we can, if something will change, I'm going to be happy. But the only way we're ever going to find happiness, the, to find real contentment, is to go, you know what, like Paul, I've learned. Sometimes I had nothing. I was fine. Sometimes I had a bunch of stuff. I was fine. That is the ultimate power in life. And that's where they went wrong in this chapter. That's what they were missing. They had so much they could have been thankful for. They could have been blessed. I mean, you could have had two nations that go, let's just make peace. And let's go kill Philistines together. But no, it has to be about power. I need more. I want more. I want to get more strong. And so in this case, it's a reminder to us as well. What is it? What's it going to take for us to be content? It's not something that happens automatically. Paul said, I learned it. If he says that, it means it's something that we can learn. We can find happiness independently of whether or not things are going the way we want them to go. We can give up that control. And many people have discovered that. Most people, I saw a study years ago where they talked to couples that had been married for like 40 years, and they said, when were you happiest as a couple? And they said, almost always, it was, we were renting that little apartment. We were eating off coupons. We had, you know, happiness doesn't coincide with you getting what you want. It doesn't work that way. 
These guys are going to become a great story of this as we continue through 2 Samuel to find out. If you don't learn to be content, you will learn to destroy yourself and everyone else. And that's a lesson that we have to learn. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for this example. It's a weird story. Sometimes it's hard for us to connect with the way other cultures and history did things. But we see something in common. These guys never had enough. And we don't either. Teach us to be content. Teach us to learn the lessons that it's never about getting what you want. It's always about learning to be satisfied with where you are. Thanks for giving us everything we need. You've given us eternity. You've given us your son. Help us to walk in true victory. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all